0: Well, tonight we are going to be in Psalm 74, Psalm 74, I'll be reading the entire Psalm. You can find it on page 486 in the Pew Bible, and I will bring the text up on the screen. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Hear the Word of the Lord. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. In all its carved wood, they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. And there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of that of habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame and let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Sometimes things get bad. And they get and then in a while, even a long while, they get better. Sometimes things go bad, and they don't get better. They seem to go from worse to worse. This is the tragedy of Israel in the Old Testament. They were delivered from slavery in Egypt, sustained by God in the wilderness, and then settled in the Promised Land. And this despite numerous failings and rebellions on the part of Israel, God saw them through. And even after a tumultuous period of rule by the judges, they, had a, they came into a united monarchy that only lasted for three kings. Last of those three kings was Solomon, who was the only one of the three kings to know peace in his rule. After his rule, the land divided into north and south territories. Relations soured and battles were fought. In time, due to the unfaithfulness and sin of the northern territory, Assyria came in and demolished the northern kingdom and exiled them into the land of Assyria. Then, in in due course, Babylon came knocking. They forced the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, to become a vassal state to pay tribute to Babylon in order to stay In existence without Babylon coming to destroy them. Uh, Judah had long uh, been able to survive longer than the northern kingdom because while it did have its occasional evil rulers, it had largely remained faithful to God and the covenant and the law, but in time they too became corrupt and abandoned the ways of the Lord. They disregarded the law of God and killed his prophets that he sent to them. Yet they claimed and believed falsely, arrogantly, that Judah, Jerusalem would never fall because after all was not the temple in Jerusalem. And surely God would not allow the temple to be destroyed. But God reminded them that he didn't need temples and that he would indeed bring judgment upon them. And they didn't believe it, but that is exactly what God did. In the end, Babylon swept in and laid siege to Jerusalem. They sacked the city, leveled its walls, destroyed the temple. They took most of the people there, and at least the healthy and the strongest. They left the poorest and the weakest. And the people of God stayed in exile for many years. And then in sometime in the decades to follow, after this disastrous moment, someone wrote Psalm 74. It is a song of someone sitting in the darkness who cannot see the end of their troubles. There's no way out. Who can defeat Babylon? They're exiled. The city walls are in ruins, the temple's burned. What do we do now? This is a worst case scenario situation. And when such times come upon us, we are tempted to despair when all the normal expectations of life and all the fail-safe that we have in place fail, we are tempted to despair. As for Israel, the troubles that had come upon them were the judgment of God upon their clear violations, generation after generation of the law of God. But there are also dark times that befall us that are not Due to because we have violated God's law, because we have killed his prophets, but simply because the realities of living in a fallen world. And like I mentioned this morning in the sermon, you know, it's like a natural disaster, flooding or a hurricane and things like that. There's times where God has sent natural disasters as judgments. And there's times where he doesn't send them as a judgment for sin necessarily or immediately or that you can point to specifically. And so and so we can't just we can't just point to and it's hard to discern which one is which. But if someone comes down with a, you know, a, a severe diagnosis of, you know, stage 4 cancer, we don't just assume that they did something bad and God is punishing them. Yet even in that case, that is a dark, painful circumstance. Is it not? So what do we do when we find ourselves in such a place? When we find ourselves in the place of you know, lamenting the destruction of our life that is around us. And where there doesn't seem to be relief in sight. Well, tonight the psalmist gives us a two-fold strategy. And first, we need to face the darkness. Secondly, we shine the light of God and His truth in that darkness. So first... We need to learn how to face the darkness in verses one through eleven, and and this is very important because we a lot of times we avoid these things. We don't want to talk about them. That's why we we don't we, you know we just we it's better if we just don't do this and do with happy things. But there come a point, and we're talking about a situation where you can't avoid it. There's no, like, it doesn't matter, like, there's no way to distract yourself away from it. Like, you can't avoid it. It is right there in your face, cannot be avoided darkness. And so what do we do? It's important to face the darkness, you know, and I think of, like, the issue of um, suicide. Um, very dark, very hard, and, and people's knee-jerk reaction is, well, like, well, whoa, we can't talk about that. Because if we talk about suicide, then more people will kill themselves, there's just kind of, or it's a very dark thing. You can't talk about it. You can't talk about that. But any counselor worth your salt will say that if, you, if, if someone's struggling with suicide, it's actually good to talk about suicide and suicide prevention uh, rather than to avoid it because that actually helps prevent suicide. And so because you have to face the darkness, what is causing these things? What is bringing these things up? And so there are times where we have to face the darkness itself. And here the psalmist shows us that where we need to begin is a very guttural reaction. It shouldn't surprise us. Is that cry out to the Lord. We begin with a cry out to the Lord in verses 1 through 3. The psalmist begins with, with a cry asking, Why? Why, Lord, do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against your sheep? That's a hard question, isn't it? It's like, God, there's it, it so many things, so many layers to that question. Clearly, he's the shepherd who cares for his sheep. So why does his anger smoke against his sheep? Now, some have criticized the psalmist in this psalm for being seemingly to be uh, insolent or disrespectful. That is not what's going on here. The question of why is as a cry out to God. It's a question of faith, seeking understanding in a time of immense in unending pain. The pain of the situation is of such intensity and longevity that it feels like forever, hence his question. Further, he's confused. How can God allow such a state of affairs to to continue in light of his covenant promises, in light of his relationship with Israel, in light of his role as the shepherd of Israel? I mean, he's like, hey, Psalm 23, right? What's going on? As part of his cry, he asked God to remember his congregation. This is the people he purchased and redeemed from before when he bought them and brought them out of Egypt. This is the people with whom he dwelt in the temple mount where he was worshipped and cleansed the people of their sin. And now the place where God met with his people has been utterly destroyed. And if that's gone, what are the people of God to do? if we find ourselves in a place where like the psalmist, we are surrounded by the ruins of our life. He shows us that is the time to cry out to God. There is no time where we cannot cry out to the Lord. He will hear us and hear our cries. When we are devastated and broken, we need to cry out to the Lord. We need to declare our confusion and pray for God to remember us. For God to remember is not to call to mind because he forgot, but to remember is to act on our behalf, on behalf of his people, and particularly in accord with his covenant promises. More on that in a bit. We cry out to him, but then also it is good to recount the evils of the enemy. In verses 4 through 8, the psalmist here focuses on the horrors committed, particularly in the sanctuary, in the temple, the blasphemous ways the, the, the enemy has treated the holy things of the Lord. They roared like beasts. They swung their axes like they were in a forest. They destroyed the beauty of the sanctuary and then burned it with fire. And what was so particularly heinous in the psalmist's eyes, and and rightly so, is that the temple was the dwelling place of the name of the Lord. They profaned the sanctuary of God. They set up their own signs in place of Israel's signs. That is, signs, he means military banners and, and signs of their own deities to show the superiority of their own gods and their own power over Israel's God. Now while it is true that God doesn't need a sanctuary or and that he was using this nation of Babylon to punish Israel he nevertheless uh, he nevertheless still um, we find out in scripture demands punishment for what the Babylonians did to Israel and to the temple uh, and this is this is the ama- amazing and marvelous and honestly just inscrutable sovereign way of God he can use sins, sinlessly, as Luther said, in order to accomplish his own glorious purposes. He uses the Babylonians to bring promised judgment to his own people for violating the covenant, and then he will punish the Babylonians for what they do to Israel. That is the way of the Lord. His ways are beyond us. And this goes back to what he told Habakkuk. Remember, Habakkuk goes and he says, Lord, it's, it's so corrupt here. It's so awful and terrible. No one's following the law. They're violating it. And he says, don't worry. I'm sending the Babylonians to kill you. And, and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, we're bad, but we're not Babylonian bad. All right? That's, that's, that's real bad, you know? And then, and then he says, oh, don't worry. I'll, I'll give the Babylonians what they're, getting, they're what's coming to them, too. Don't you worry about that. But first, you all are getting what you, get, what you deserve. Right? It wasn't necessarily comforting, but that's when at the end of the book, Habakkuk says, look, I'm going to stand back and stand at the wall and I'm going to stand and wait, for, wait upon the Lord. I'm going to wait upon his salvation because I know that he is good. And while, and while his, this revelation was heartbreaking, he knew to trust in the Lord. So this was devastation that the author's speaking of here, that the, that the enemy brought. The author refers to it as the perpetual ruins in verse 3. And you can go read in the book of Lamentations greater detail about the horrors uh, of the attack of the Babylonians and the awful things they did to the people of the city of Jerusalem. But the focus here for the author is exclusively on the destruction of the sanctuary. How will God dwell with his people now? Without the temple, how would sacrifice for sin be made? How would the prayers be offered up on the altar of incense? It seemed as if Israel was not just being destroyed, but being erased. It's a good thing to list out the wrongs of the enemy. It's healthy and necessary, especially in prayer, for us to lay before God our complaint exactly why it is that we are distraught. What has happened? Lay it out. For the author, the temple had been destroyed, and the enemies of Israel were, uh, were in triumph over them. And further, time had passed, perhaps decades. We don't know how long it's been, and nothing has changed. So what's going on? Again, lay out your confusion. Lay out your hurt, your worry, your anxiety. Lay out the wrongs done upon you by the enemy. And then as you do, declare your true need, as the author does in verses 9 through 11. The author says that they no longer see their signs. That is, they no longer see the signs of God's victory and presence in their midst. Aaron's budding staff from the book of Numbers, the bronze censers that were hammered out after Korah's rebellion, the high priest who would walk around with the breastplate with the stones with the names of the tribes of Israel engraved on them in the shoulder in the shoulder uh, uh, plates, and, and who walking around representing the people of God, the uh, the the. the The bronze altar where sacrifices were made, the altar of incense. Remember, we're talking about Levites here, generally speaking. And even the Ark of the Covenant itself, who though we know only one man would see once a year, was still a sign of God's presence, and yet they were gone. All of them gone. Burned or taken into the treasury of the king of Babylon. There is no prophet, and thus there is no word of God in the land. And so he asked two questions. How long and why? How long will this go on, Lord? How long will the enemies of God and his people be allowed to crow in triumph and disparage the name of God? Why doesn't God act and destroy them right now? They deserve it. And the author narrows and clarifies his need here in, this, in these verses. He's praying for the deliverance of God by his mighty hand. He needs God to act, to bring the enemies of Israel low, to reestablish his word, and to reestablish the signs of his power and presence and glory in the land. The author here is in, is in a hard place, one of the hardest places the nation of Israel has ever been. And God is not acting in a way that makes sense to him. Has God ever not made sense to you? Is God's timing, his action, or his seeming lack of inaction not made sense to you? Where there are ruins around us, where the signs of God's power and presence cannot be found in our lives, where where it is as if the enemy has conquered, this is where we need to declare our need and cry out to the Lord. We need to recognize our helplessness and our need for God to deliver us. We need to recognize that God may not work on our own timetable. In that moment, we need to learn and hold on to the truth. We need to not... Uh, we, need to, we need to confess our pain and our confusion and not hide behind a false piety, but to bring these things before the Lord, to lay them out before him, to recount the evils that have been done to us, to pray for his deliverance. Uh, but in all of this, we must always remember the quote from, from, uh, from one um, Christian theologian of old who said, God's wounds are better than Satan's remedies. God's wounds are better than Satan's salves, is the actual quote. The trials of affliction that God sends can wake us up to our sins, release us from the bondage of worldliness, that we may realize that God is our true portion, and thus take hold of Him as our treasure, and fully entrust ourselves to Him. Yet, as we stand there in the darkness of affliction, we are encouraged to shine the light of God's truth. And there are two things to focus on in this section, verses 12 to 23. And first is that when we are standing in the darkness, we need to, first of all, confess what we know. To confess what we know, verses 12 through 17. The psalmist, he doesn't know how long, he doesn't know why God seems to be withholding his power to deliver at this moment. But he does know some important things about his God. And he's going to tell them to you. He knows that his God is king and he's not a new king. He has been king for a long, long time from of old. He knows that he is yet working salvation in the midst of the earth, even though he cannot see it. He knows that he knows this is true because of God's mighty deliverances of his people, which he sets forth. In terms of creation, he talks about how God divided the sea and broke the heads of the sea monster. You could even translate it as the sea gods. And so complete was his victory over the Leviathan that God gave his body over as food to the creatures of the land. Now, there's lots of, uh, maybe not surprisingly, there's lots of scholarly debate over what exactly the psalmist means with these verses. He, uh, and, and the sea, now generally speaking, the sea in the ancient world is considered a place of chaos and evil uh, with monsters and, uh, of the deep. Uh, um, and so and often you would have these kind of pagan uh, myths that uh, had the gods doing battle with the sea and the monsters in it. And, uh, and it may be the case that uh, the author is using some of that imagery of uh, that kind of... Um, uh, and the biblical authors like to do this. They'll take some of the imagery that's used uh, in, with uh, stories of Baal or Marduk, and they will use it to show that what was done in stories with these false gods was actually accomplished by the Lord. And so there's actually um, there's actually a great little book on this type of idea uh, called "Against the Gods." So like against the odds, against the gods. And so and, um and so uh, by John Currid. And so a little book about this whole this whole concept of how the Bible works as a polemic or an argument attacking uh, um, other other pagan uh, religions. Uh, and it just kind of does this passively and kind of so kind of does a you know kind of thing when it, when it's doing this type of stuff and so it's saying our God is better than your God. And that's what the author seems to be doing here uh, for. Uh, and, and so uh, and so he's presenting, it seems to be uh, the enemies of God and his people as metaphors with this creative language, because there certainly are allusions or at least echoes to the plundering of the Egyptians, uh, the victory over uh, of, over the Egyptians at the Red Sea. Uh, The drying up of the River Jordan, the miraculous care uh, of God's people in the wilderness, and so on. And so the, the author knows, the bottom line is the author knows that God has delivered his people before. And that if God can act in this way, with this power, then certainly he can deliver his people out of the darkness of this situation here. Further, he knows that God has established in his creative power the boundaries of the earth. Night and day, they belong to him. He owns them both. He's not just a God of the day or a God of the night. He's the God God who owns them all. Even the seasons belong to him. But we need to consider here not just what the author is saying, but what he is doing in this. Because nothing has changed about his situation. He is still sitting in darkness of, of affliction with no end in sight. He doesn't understand why God is doing, uh, doing, uh, doing what he's doing or not doing what he thinks God should do. So, what does he do? Well, standing there in the darkness, he says the creed I believe. And there are times when that is the only thing that we can do to stand in the darkness and we don't know why God is doing what he's doing or when it will end. And the best thing we can do in the darkness is to stand and say the creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. To declare what we know to be true. I don't know what's going on with me now. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know if this is going to end in my lifetime. But I know who my God is. And I know what he has done. Stand in the dark and say the creed. But there is yet... A second thing we can do in verses 18 to 23, plead the covenant. The psalmist again asks for God to bring judgment on his enemies to deliver his people who are weak and vulnerable. He prays in verse 20 for God to have regard for his covenant. Now, this is important to to hear what he's doing here because the people of God have violated the covenant and they're being punished for violations of the covenant. Time and again, God warned them, but they refused him. They denied his word. They killed his prophets. They ran after other gods. Yet in, those, in the covenant, God made promises. He made covenant promises through Abraham to bless the nations through Israel. Promises through Moses to circumcise the hearts of his people After they had broken the covenant, after the curses of the covenant had fallen upon them, he said, I will come back to you and circumcise your hearts. It says at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Covenant promises through David to bring forth a king who would rule forever and blessedness and glory promises through Jeremiah, depending on exactly when this was written, to bring forth a new and better covenant. And we have these covenant promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ in whom and by his blood we have been given that better covenant, that better promise, that clearer promise a covenant by which we participate through grace and faith, a covenant that promises pardon and forgiveness for our sins, the indwelling of the Spirit, the sealing of our very souls for eternity with God, even life in the kingdom of God itself with resurrected glorious bodies. I was reading Spurgeon's commentary on this passage and he said, Do you know how to plead the covenant? Christian. Can, do you know how to pray the covenant promises with God? Do you pray for his kingdom to come? For God to restore you, to rain down his refreshing goodness, to strengthen you and forgive you for Christ's sake, for your more recent, most recent sins and failures? We still have enemies, don't we? The church has her foes, and we still need to pray for God to defend his cause to remember his covenant promises, to bless us in our distress. But let us not forget that it was by the wounds he inflicted upon the nation of Israel that our Savior was brought forth as a blessing to the world. Let us not forget that the wounds of God will bring forth uh, peace and are greater than any remedy of Satan. Let us always seek our help from heaven and not from earth. And so I don't know where you are tonight. You may be in a place in your life that is full of hope and promise and joy, or you may be in a place like the psalmist, in a place of darkness and deep distress. You may be somewhere kind of in a hazy middle. But what I do know is that we have a God who teaches us what to do in the hardest and darkest of moments, which means we have something we can do anytime we are in distress. That we carry our cries to him. We can recount the evils that have been done to us, declare our true need, a need for his deliverance, for his word, for his power. And then we can always say the creed. We recount what we know about our God, recall his past deliverances uh, and, and always recounting the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Let us then plead the promises of the new covenant. In doing so, perhaps we will be reminded that we have not been promised an easy life, but we have been promised a life that is full of grace and truth. A life that may know darkness in the moment, but a life that doesn't end in darkness and the gnashing of teeth and eternal sorrow, but a life that will end in joy and life and peace for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you answer us in our deepest distress. And Lord, you do not give us false comforts, false hopes. But, Lord, you give us grace. And you remind us that while we are welcome to put our deep and pained questions to you, how long and why, and you do not rebuke us for them, but that you teach us. And, Lord, we pray that you would teach us. We pray that we would learn to not only to cry out to you, not only to recount our sorrows, and why we are in distress. Not only to know that you welcome those, those painful prayers, but that we would learn to say the creed, to recount what we know about you, what we know is certainly true about you, that we may be encouraged in our distress. And Lord, may we learn to plead the covenant promises that you may rightly direct our hope not to false earthly hopes of earthly comforts and earthly expectations, but of heavenly and eternal ones. Lord, may you lead us. May you bless us wherever we're at tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.